Welcome to Words to Mouth, an author interview talk show where readers meet authors beyond the printed page and win free books. I'm your host, Carrie, and I produce this show to introduce you to new and seasoned authors and the books they write. This show is a companion to my blog website at wordstomouth.com. That's words with an S, T-O, mouth.com, where you'll find more author interviews, book reviews, and chances to win free books. So check that out after the interview. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Mark Aceto. His newest book is Attack of the Theater People. It's hysterical, and I love it. Hi, Mark. Well, can I just, hello, and can I just say you have excellent taste? (laughs) Yes, I do. You know, it's funny. I uh, had I was tempted to start this interview out by breaking out in song, you know, "Honey, Honey" from Mamma Mia or something like that, because I, your book just does that to people. I think it's. Uh, you can talk about the gorilla, the gorilla theater later, but um, I just I just love the way you write, and I have to I have a, a confession to make. Oh, it's going to be that kind of interview, isn't it? <laughs> now that I've got you on the line. No, you know, I um, life has just been really crazy with the holidays and everything, and I found myself having to rush, 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 and try to um, read your book. And, I, you know, I'd, try, I'd scan ahead, and then I'd see something wonderful, and I'm like, I cannot do this. I want to capture every word. So I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to relax. And so here's the deal. I've gotten most of the way through it, but you cannot give any spoilers on the end, which I don't want you to do anyway, but um, but I just really enjoyed it. And I was laughing at um, on Trash Anista where you were named the honorary chiclet writer, and she talked yeah. about blowing iced tea through her nose from laughing about your book. Yes, this is what I aspire to. <laughs> and I did the same thing actually with seltzer water, so it must be a it must be um, something that happens to people that that read your writing. Yeah, I really cannot overstate how amazing it is to be able to get people to have involuntary physical reactions. You know, to have people say to you, "Wow, you know, you, I read your book and it made me almost pee my pants." I mean, there's a there's a power in that, an unbelievable kind of rush in that that you could write something and then someone would have a physical reaction like snorting something out of their <laughs> nose or you know urinating against their will I mean, this, is, this is extraordinary to me that this it's, can happen it's a gift it truly i think it's truly a gift because i do i was left left yeah i was sitting there and laughing out loud in a couple different instances it's kind of embarrassing and i i was left thinking how does he do that i mean have you always been able i guess it's just a gift that you must have had early on I discovered, actually, as a teenager, that I had a real facility for ridiculing others. <laughs> and I have seized on that and have, have built upon it and have tried to continue ways to, uh, to observe human behavior. And, and to, you know, comedy is laughing at somebody else's pain. Right. And so, which is why, you know, World War II is so funny, for instance. <laughs> And I try to find ways to be able to get my characters into as much pain as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm willing to write about my own pain and make my own, myself the, the target of other, other people's scorn and ridicule. And people seem to find that funny. I'll have readers come up to me after they've read a particular passage and they'll quote it to me. And they'll say, oh my gosh, that part made me laugh so hard. I, I had to put the book down, kept my husband awake, that kind of thing. And I'll think to myself, oh, thank you so much. Now, that was the serious part. <laughs> I appreciate that anyway. <laughs> because, you know, you, you, I try to cut as close to the bone as I can. And right. people seem to laugh. What can I tell you? 
Well, and uh, Attack of the Theater People is the sequel to How I Paid for College. For our listeners who aren't familiar with your writing, can you give us the quick and dirty on your first book and then a little bit about the Attack of the Theater People? Absolutely. How I Paid for College is a novel about a kid who schemes to steal his college tuition money when his wealthy father refuses to pay for him to study acting at Juilliard. So he turns to a life of crime, including but not limited to identity theft, fraud, forgery, blackmail, embezzlement, and just a wee bit of prostitution. (laughs) And then Attack of the Theater People continues the saga after our hero has been kicked out of acting school for being too, quote, jazz hands for Juilliard. And so he gets absorbed into an insider trading scandal on Wall Street and has to be rescued by his theater friends. In both cases, the books are really love letters to my friends. And they're about a family of friends and the kind of way in which we create tribes of, of families amongst our closest friends. This is what Armistead Maupin calls your logical family as opposed to your biological family. Right. And that really fascinates me, the way in which we create these communities. And it's really strong amongst theater people, the kinds of people who break into show tunes in their hallways and, frankly, in their lives. You know, mm-hmm. I'm still one of those people who who breaks into song. I'm, I'm Half the time, I'm unaware of it. <laughs> Standing waiting for a bus, and someone will say, oh, you have such a nice voice. And I'm thinking, was I singing? <laughs> well, uh, there's two different things. There's one, the website, on your website, um, you have a great book trailer where you have, are those your actual friends that are helping you out in, the, in that video? Those are my Facebook friends. Oh, your Facebook those are actually, friends. Uh, yeah, those are fans, actually, of young theater people. I was uh, going to New York to film a promotional video for Attack of the Theater People, and I sent out a message on Facebook and MySpace to my fans and saying I was looking for you know, college students who were available to run around Times Square and create some guerrilla theater in Times Square, and we got this gaggle of very enthusiastic young would-be actors who were willing to just run around and sing and dance in Times Square and nearly get arrested. Because <laughs> yeah. you're not really supposed to film in Times Square without a permit. That's not actually allowed. So you just kept running? <laughs> right, well, so yeah, we kept them on the run. Yeah, there, there's actually a shot of us, everyone dancing across, uh, uh, right across Times Square. Uh-huh. And we were not able to get the footage of the cop who then follows us saying, <laughs> okay, you guys have to stop now. It's great. I'm going to, I'm going to put a, um, I'll post it on my website with the, with the interview. It's really cute. Thanks. Um, and then the other thing, yeah, there's a, another little clip of you doing your book singing instead of your, you know, instead of a book signing. You want to tell our listeners about that? Yeah, I just feel like nowadays authors have to compete with the, the internet and games and porn and social networking. And there are all these other distractions from reading a book. So I think it's really essential to be able to engage readers in any way that you can. And one of the things that I do is I create what I call a book singing instead of a book signing. And because I'm a former music theater guy, I too was kicked out of acting school for being too jazz hands. Mm. So I know how well how does he think of these things. <laughs> and so I created this, essentially, Marco the Musical, which is where I'll read the scenes from my books and I'll sing the songs that the characters sing and stories and have kind of a, oh, I don't know, a one-man musical extravaganza, I suppose. It's kind of like Mamma Mia, except 
there's no mama. It's <laughs> Mia. Yeah. This are you going to you're writing another sequel to this to this particular series? I am working yeah on this as a series. I'm I'm, I'm picturing it as a trilogy right now. Uh-huh. It just doesn't seem right to stop with them in mid college. I, I want to take these characters to their mid twenties for what's often referred to as the quarter century crisis, mm-hmm. uh, and to finish out that period of their lives. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take them up to 25. That said, I wouldn't be surprised if I returned to these characters again. I could really work on them all the way through how I paid for the assisted living center, frankly. <laughs> the nice thing about having your characters age is that they change. You know, yeah. You've got new identities that they assume, particularly when they're young. But even as they age, having just gone through a midlife crisis myself, I can really see how much one has to reinvent oneself. You just need to go to my website and go to Mark's Museum of Hair. So go to marcosito.com and click on the About Mark section, and you'll see Mark's Museum of Hair. to see all of my many hairdos and hair don'ts over the years. Awesome. You realize that people reinvent themselves constantly over time. So by having the characters not remain static, they remain interesting to me. Plus, again, they're theater people, so they will say and do the most unexpected things, mm-hmm. which is really helpful for fiction. You know, to have a very unstable, self-aggrandizing characters makes for really interesting scenarios. Because I write farces. You know, I'm writing with people, you know, hanging off of fire escapes and being chased in the streets and running around and and engaging in all kinds of illicit crimes. Right, right. Well, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really endless the the opportunities for what you can write about. Um, and I and I know people always ask fiction writers if the main character is based on the author. And at the risk of sounding unoriginal, how much does Edward Zani resemble Marcosito? I would say it's a natural question. By the way, I, I understand you, you you sort of added a caveat there, like mm-hmm. sort of apologetically. But there is something about fiction that is so compelling that we need to know the author's connection to it. I, I, I suffer from it myself. You just really want to know, well, how much of it is true? Pretty much where the dividing line can be between the uh, the caper and the character. You know, the character is very much like myself. Mm-hmm. I'd say he is... I was going to say he's a more neurotic version of myself, but not really. He's, I was that neurotic when I was in my 20s. I'd like to think that I've maybe grown, grown out of it to a degree. Right. So I have a certain amount of critical distance at this point. Mm-hmm. But certainly in my 20s, it's very much who I was. The difference is, of course, is that I didn't turn to a life of crime. So anything involving any of the capers in the, in the books is a big leap into fiction, a big what if. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what I'm thinking about is what if um, I and my friends did turn to a life of crime what would it be like? That said, you know, the characters are all composites because I, I create characters like you create Frankenstein's monster, you know, out of spare body parts. <laughs> it's very disorienting for my real friends to read my books because it sort of looks like our lives, but not really. Right. It's this idealized, wacky Ocean's Eleven kind of version of our lives. Mm-hmm. It's like you're writing about, that's me. No, it's not. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, that's exactly what happens. There'll be a moment where someone will recognize something that you know directly came out of their mouths. Right. But it'll come out of what they would perceive as being one of our other friends. So it doesn't really match up. It becomes this parallel reality. <laughs> yeah, it's like an alternate universe. I, I, I'm really fascinated by that, actually. I find it really compelling, that relationship between the the author's real life and the author's 
fictional universe. And in my case, at least, it's definitely a parallel reality. You can see the connections. I, I talk like I write. I write like I talk. And so I think it's, people really do get a sense of who I am. When they read me, they, you know, they, they really do get a, a, a sense of what it's like to know me. It's not that different. It's just the, the more cleaned up version right. where I sound clever all the time as opposed to now where I'm stumbling and struggling <laughs> to be articulating the adorable and make sure I'm funny. I have immense inferiority about, about doing interviews because it's a first draft. Yeah, you know, I'm, like I'm to trying re- to be authentic revise. and actually talk to you as opposed to, you know, quipping like Oscar Wilde, dropping in little bon mots from time to time. And, well, of course, on the page, uh, that you're reading the 15th or 16th draft, so right. naturally I've had a chance to really make it sound super clever. Well, it's funny because, you know, I don't know why, but I, I think that maybe is the reason that you're so witty, you're so smart and funny in your writing, and it's like, I got a little intimidated. I'm thinking, this guy is going to be, like, just throwing quips at me left and right, and I'm going to have to be on my toes. So I appreciate that you have a little inferiority there. So I know, I feel, yes, I feel inferior to myself all uh, the time uh, because I've created this parallel version of myself, right, and right. I, I feel like I can't live up to it. I, I am not... There, you know, that's really interesting. It's so funny. You're right. I have been asked that question a number of times, but I have never once actually thought of it, that the, the answer, the real answer to that question that I've actually never given before is that the difference between me and Edward Zani is that I am not nearly <laughs> as funny or clever. Mm-hmm. That I, I just, it takes me an immense amount of practice to be able to say and do the things that these characters can do apparently the first time out. Right, right. It's kind of like that experience when you you have an experience and you think later, oh, I should have said this, but you get to do that in your writing with Edward. Exactly. And yeah. like, you know, like Fred Astaire. Mm. You know, he would rehearse for three months for, you know, five minutes worth of sublime film. And mm. he makes it look so easy and natural that we all just want to get up and do it ourselves. And then we get up and look at ourselves and we look like we're having an epileptic fit. <laughs> and... But that's because he would rehearse it for three months right. until it, it looked effortless. Right. That, that's, I feel, like part of my job is to make it look like I'm so effortlessly witty, hopefully. Uh, I, I, you I do. You do a great job. That's oh. why I was saying earlier, I'm like, how does he do that? And you're right. It's like you, you, as you read it, you think it's just is occurring right then and there, but you do go back and, I'm sure, revise and revise and revise. Yeah, I'm, and I am a huge rewriter. You know, I'm working on the first draft of a new book right now, and it just makes me cringe as I read mm-hmm. it because I'm writing stuff that I would never want anyone to see. And it's only going to be consumable once it's been polished and polished and polished. Right. Uh, that's got to be the hardest. I mean, I've tried. I've started three books, and I get that's what happens to me. I get stuck, and I go back, and I start revising before I've ever gotten the whole thing out. So that's that's, that's a lesson. <laughs> Do you outline? No, I don't. And I, I mean, I'll scribble. I'll scribble down some things, some notes, and you know. But I, as far as being really detailed and outlining it, um, I think that's something I should probably do. You know, it's not for everybody. Some mm-hmm. writers need to feel themselves along the dark wall. Mm-hmm. And I respect that because that's how some writers have to write. But often I hear that syndrome of people who get about a third of the way into something and then it falls apart on them. And I think generally it's because they don't have a sense of where they're going. And mm-hmm. the outline can really serve as a map. And in my case, at least, because I'm writing farces where mm-hmm. I really have to manipulate 
the audience's expectations and misdirect them so I can surprise them right. so that every chapter there is an unexpected turn. Mm-hmm. That's something that I have to be the puppet master of mm-hmm. and arrange a journey so I can arrange the, the misdirections and the detours along the way. So I'm a big believer in it, and particularly for someone who is starting things and is not able to finish them, I think it would be really useful. Okay. Well, let's let's go back a little bit and talk about your background. It is so varied. You know, I had heard a little bit about how you were initially published. So, and it's very it's a very synchronistic journey. And I just thought maybe you could share a little bit about that. I was working as a salesperson. I had been an opera singer. It was the career I turned to after I got kicked out of acting school. Mm-hmm. And so. I had been an opera singer for the majority of my 20s and part of my early 30s, and then I walked away from that career because I wasn't really suited to that either. So my whole artistic path had been littered with false starts and artistic frustration, and it was only then that I started really writing in earnest, but I had to make a living because I was starting all over again with a new artistic discipline at you know, 32. So I became a salesman for five years and had this job that I hated so much I wanted to chew off my arm. And it was during that time that I really turned into a writer and was working, you know, 60 hours a week plus writing a novel at night and writing a column called The Gospel According to Mark, which was syndicated in uh, gay papers around the country. Mm-hmm. And in a moment that really changed the course of my entire life, I went to a reading given by Chuck Palahniuk the author of Fight Club and other New York Times bestsellers. Mm-hmm. And I introduced myself, and he said, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. I've read your column. So as a result of that, we got to know each other a bit, in particular because we ended up in a, a screenwriting class given by a screenwriter named Cynthia Whitcomb for the Hollywood screenwriter living in Portland. And as a result of getting to know each other in that class, he recommended me to his agent, who recommended me to his editor, who bought my book in just two days. That's awesome. Where it really gets even more synchronistic is that his agent is a was, is also an actor. Uh, his name is Edward Hibbert, and he's an actor who uh, formed a recurring role on uh, Fraser and Bill Chesterton, the fussy English restaurant critic. And there was a book that really influenced the development of my book, which was called Blue Heaven, uh, which was a delightful page-turning farce by a guy named Joe Keenan, who went on to be the head writer on Fraser. And so I knew this when I was querying Edward, and I mentioned to him that this book had been really influential. Well, fast forward, he gives it to Jerry Howard, who was Chuck's editor at Doubleday, and it turns out that Jerry had been the editor of Blue Heaven, which I wasn't aware of. Oh, my gosh. So it, there was just this amazing way in which the planet kind of all lined up for this to happen. Right. And I have been writing professionally now for, gosh, uh, it's been five and a half years now that I've actually been able to make my living as a writer for which I'm eternally grateful and constantly desperate that I'm, it won't last. <laughs> well, and I love what you like, said I'm about... I'm still a little neurotic like my character. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, you know, it is. It's true. We do have to... Re- most people end up reinventing themselves a number of times. I was laughing about your comments about your hair because that was that's a great page on your website. But I had to. I was wondering what, what was with the bleached blonde hair. Are you, are you still bleached blonde? I am still bleached blonde. I am having more fun, I have to say. <laughs> it's true that blondes have more fun. Uh-huh. And the reason I bleached it was because I did this blog project last year where I did something new every single day for a year, for all of 2008. And the reason I did it was I was having something of a midlife crisis brought on 
in part because I was 42 and in part because we were entering a recession and I was between books and my finances were really tight and I was just feeling really trapped and I decided I need to do something to invigorate my daily life. What's more, I looked at my Christmas newsletter for 2007 and discovered that it was virtually identical to 2006 uh-huh. and I just hadn't been doing anything interesting at all. And as, a, as an artist, you really need to keep yourself invigorated and stimulated. Is that on the website, right, your blog website right now, or is that something that's another, a different site? Uh, it's, well, it, it's marcasito.blogspot.com, right. but you can get to it from the homepage of my website. So if you simply go to marcasito.com and click on the, the tab for the blog, it'll uh-huh. take you right to my blog. And then, of course, to see the project in its entirety, you have to go back through last year's posts. Okay. I continue to post on that site, but I don't post only about doing something new because now I've, I've cut back to doing something new just once a week uh-huh. because I, I do believe in it as a principle, but to do it every single day became yeah. a rush into itself. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it was like being married to a nymphomaniac <laughs> at first, but after a while, it gets really Exhausting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really was, and I... I'm still relieved to be done of it. That said, it was so invigorating and eye-opening and life-changing to be able to do something new every day. And certainly, easily, 25% of the things that I did, you know, let's say 90 things, were extraordinary to me. I'd say 90%, excuse me, 90 of them or 25% of them were also really lame and desperate and, oh my God, what am I going to do today? Because I, you know, I, I can't think of anything to do, so I'll iron my money. You know? So not all of them were really amazing. But I really do believe in it as a principle, as a way of, of making your life more buoyant and, and also forcing you to look at your life through new eyes or look at the world through new eyes. Right. You know, something as simple as just wearing my clothes inside out for a day right. was, just gave me a different perspective. And not so much like I, I discovered so much about clothes, but I found myself just noticing. Because mm-hmm. yeah, if you put your clothes on, on, on inside out, I just, I just become aware of how my clothes are made. And, and I just found myself noticing the world more because I was noticing myself. Hmm. And so... It just kind of reactivated that part of my brain that really wants to engage in the world. Mm-hmm. I've actually now moved on to a new blog project, which is called The Mesmer Project, which can be found at mesmerproject.blogspot.com, which also you can find through my blog. And that is analogous to the first project, in that the first project I couldn't afford to go anywhere, so I had to create adventures at home in mm-hmm. any way that I could, and for mm-hmm. very little money. That first blog project cost me $750. The second one kind of speaks to that as well, is that I don't feel like I have the means to be able to get out into the world to meet the best and the brightest and the most fascinating people in the world. Mm-hmm. But I do have the means to be able to bring them to me. And so what I did was I started by interviewing the five most fascinating people I know people that I could listen to all night long, people who are just continually involved in the world and always have something exciting going on in their lives. And then my partner and I have now asked them to recommend the most fascinating person that they know, the most mesmerizing person. That's why we call it the Mesmer Project. Right. And then each person will recommend another person moving on from there, leading us who knows where. I mean, it's only the first month, so I'm only 
uh, into the first you know round of, of people. But already it's taken the unexpected place. I love it. It introduced me to people that I would not have expected that they would have recommended. I, I mean, in it. one case, someone recommended a, a local soul singer who had overcome this disease where she had to have an operation and lost 300 pounds. And she's this amazing performer. And she's right here in my city. And I'd never heard of her. Her name's Tahoe Jackson. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've lived in Portland for 19 years. How did I not know this woman? So on the one hand, I'm looking forward to it taking me out of my circle and into another orbit. On the other hand, it's forced me already to look again at the undiscovered gems in my own backyard. Well, and that's, you know, that's common. We tend to think we have to go you know, to another state, to another country, to wherever, to find new and interesting things. And it kind of speaks to what you were talking about before, is just taking notice of what's around you in your own... But that's just that you do have to go looking for your life. Mm-hmm. You do have to look for adventure. It seldom will it just arrive at your doorstep. Mm-hmm. It usually, I'd say, if you really want to have a life that is full of excitement and adventure and interest and stimulation, then you need to get out of the house. You need to show up and, and do something, you know. Uh, and, I mean, in my case, that meant, you know, canoeing in a 500-pound pumpkin, you know, and then going to what was called the <laughs> pumpkin regatta. And there was this race with these huge hollowed-out pumpkins in a lake where we had to get into this pumpkin and kayak these things around a man-made lake. Who came up with that idea? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> well, the beautiful thing uh, about doing this kind of thing is that you then attract it to you. So once people know that I'm into doing these kinds of things, they recommend them to me. And somebody uh-huh. sent me an article about how there was going to be this pumpkin race. And I called and got on the list. And what hadn't occurred to me was that I had never been kayaking before. So they hand me these oars, and I have no idea how to operate kayak oars before. And, of course, I'm doing it while trying to pilot a, an exceedingly large vegetable. And it would have probably been in my best interest to actually learn how to kayak first before I tried <laughs> to navigate you know, a large gourd, <laughs> yeah, around the lake. But nonetheless, I managed to, you know, prevail and pilot this thing around. And I'll never forget that the rest of my life. It was, you know, it was, it was one of those moments where I just thought, this is exactly what I want my life to look like. You know, awesome. I want to be the guy who pilots a vegetable around <laughs> the lake. Yeah, when you, when you go to a party and they have those little get-to-know-you, you know, those little, um, I forget what they call them. What do they call them? Ice you know, yes, thank you, icebreakers, and you have to mention something that you've done that you've got a whole you've got a whole binder full of things you can talk about. Oh yeah, um, no, I, I yeah, I swallowed fire. I walked on stilts. I've got tons of icebreakers, no problem. Well, I want to turn the tables on you a little bit. Um, you mentioned the Mesmer Project, and I want to turn the tables on you. But I wanted to mention real quick to the listeners that Mark has offered a copy of Attack of the Theater People for our free book giveaway contest. So go to wordstomouth.com and leave a comment under this interview post. Or you can call 206-309-7318 and leave a voicemail message I can play on air and you'll be entered. Be sure that you're subscribed to my e-newsletter so you'll be informed of uh, the, the winner. I wanted to ask you, you had in your Mesmer project, you've got a few different questions that you. it looks like you're going to be asking each person. And I wanted right. to I turn the tables on you and ask you, one of your questions is what motivates you to get up in the morning? Ooh, you don't know? <laughs> I thought you'd have an answer right away. Interestingly, I had not actually thought it through. I, huh. 
I was so geared towards looking towards other people. I have actually not thought about what my own response is. You're the very first person to ask me that. <laughs> gotcha. What motivates me? Out of, yeah, no, it's great. What, what motivates me out of bed in the morning? I'd say a, a combination of low-grade panic <laughs> that, that I would have to go back to having a life of quiet, desperation. Mm. You know, I don't ever want to go back to a day job and have to show up at an office and, and sit under fluorescent lights in a cubicle farm like some prairie dog. Right. That, that to me just feels like one of Dante's rings of hell. Me too. And, and I, so I love the independence that I have to lead an artistic life. And so mm. partly what motivates me out of bed in the morning and gets me going to to do the work that I do is just the sheer blind panic that I may have to go back to that. And so I'd better get my ass in gear and right. crank something out there into the world and, and, and say something. The other thing I think that motivates me out of bed is the awareness that life is so very short and that I, I just feel like there's, there's so little time to do what I, I want to do. And, and, there, there, and there's so much to do. There, the world is so full of interesting and fascinating things to do that I, 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 I fear that I won't live long enough to be able to get out and do them all. That said, I, I tend to work in bed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, in some regards, I would say what motivates you, you know, to get out of bed in the morning, I actually don't get out of bed in the morning. I reach for my computer and work in bed uh, until the sun is good and toasty warm before I actually my feet hit the floor. Uh, like um, in Winston Churchill, I do my best work at that. <laughs> Excellent. I was just thinking about the fact that you've spent some time in, like you say, in those cubicles of hell, and so you you do a good job at relating relating in your writing. I'm with you on that. I just I don't want to go back there. I like to have that same lifestyle of um, having a lot of flexibility, but it does. Yeah, you're you're in charge of your income. What you do directly affects your bank account. So I totally yeah, understand. So I got to get out there and do it. And yeah. it's, you know, it's not self-sustaining. It's much in the way that I said you have to go looking for adventure. The same thing is true of running your own business. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it does have its own momentum to a degree, but not unless I'm out there steering it and and piloting this large vegetable that is you know my writing career <laughs> into often murky waters and currents yeah. that take you in the wrong direction. Well, I was going to, I was, the metaphor. yeah, I was going to ask you what keeps you up at night, but I think you've already answered <laughs> that question. Now, listen, I, I think from reading your writing and everything and seeing some of the stuff on the, on the internet, I was really, I think people could be tempted to just ask you only light and airy questions, but I wonder if you'd be willing to share maybe one of your biggest struggles and what you've learned from it. And it's not a Barbara. It's not a Barbara Walters moment. But I just, <laughs> if there's something that comes to mind that you've gone through. I mean, you've talked about going through a midlife crisis, and I'm I'm your same age, or at least maybe maybe a year older than you. But so I understand when you're talking about feeling like there's so much to accomplish and not enough time. And but has there been a struggle in your life that you've worked through and feel like it's a it was a big learning lesson for you? Yeah, I think the thing that I continue to struggle with, and I orbit closer to, is the sense that I'm not enough, that I'm just not good enough to yet, that I'm, and that, that I'm, and that I will try my best, and that my best simply won't be adequate, and and then I struggle with this 
undefined sense of what would happen if that indeed turned out to be true. Like, what would happen if my dreams didn't come true? What would happen if it, it all turned out to be for naught, or I turned out to be some mediocrity, you know? And then I don't know actually what the answer to that is. Like, I, I, I can't tell you, if I, as I try to define it, what that would mean. Because I, because I always put that off for the future, Hmm. I think I might die feeling that way, you know, just always looking at myself as some kind of work in progress, always striving for something, and only when it's over will I know, or I probably won't know, only would others know whether I actually did something worthwhile, you know, because hmm. I, I get closer now to feeling more secure and feeling like that I've, I've, I've done an, uh, an adequate amount, but but I can't help but feel that I have not fulfilled my potential and haven't lived up to the, the promise of what I'm, I'm capable of doing. Wow. So I, yeah, that, go ahead. Go, no, that, that's, what were we going to say about that? I was just going to say, I just really appreciate your honesty and being open and, you know, really verbalizing what um, so many of us feel. I mean, it's, you know, I think it, someone in your position could be like, hey, I've arrived, I've, you know, I've done this, this, and this, and, I just, I just appreciate you being honest and kind of, you know, putting your vulnerability out there a little bit because I think a lot of people can relate well, to that. What's interesting to me, uh, so far with the Mesra Project, I, I can say this having looked at five or six of the res- early responses. You know, we haven't published them all yet, but I've read some of them already that are coming up. And one recurrent theme that I've seen is the nagging fear that you haven't done enough. And, I, mm-hmm. and I've heard it now from a number of people. And we're looking at highly accomplished people. Mm-hmm. And yet that is what burns as a, as a low, scary flame, mm-hmm. you know, underneath is, mm-hmm. this, is this nagging anxiety. And I think it's probably what motivates them to be high achievers. I mean, it, it's not a big leap to say, oh, well, of course, somebody who's a high achiever probably feels like they're compensating for something that they need to achieve for. And I, I certainly can identify with that. And I, and I, but I wonder, like, will I ever get to a place where I feel like I, I can truly approve of, of who I am? And it's what I end up writing about. That's one of the other things that does motivate me, getting back to that idea, mm-hmm. is one of the major themes of my writing is people having the courage to be their most audacious selves. Mm-hmm. And which is funny coming from me when you consider that I, it's partly what I struggle with. So I guess I write it as much for myself as I do for others. Right. I never thought of it that way, but it's true. Neat. So I'm going to have to pay you for the therapy session. Now. I love it. I love it. I love. I love that you're opening up. Um, okay. Well, let's let's move on a little bit. What was the best advice that you've ever received, and do you follow it? Silence. <laughs> uh, the best advice that I have received, <laughs> I'd have to say, would be not to buy the stereo equipment. Not to buy the stereo equipment. Yes. Okay. When I was. About 19 or 20, I had a, an actor friend who was in Biloxi Blues on Broadway. And he got cast, and he went out, and he bought very expensive stereo equipment. And then the show closed uh-huh. weeks after he got into it, because he came into the run late in the run. Mm-hmm. And it was such a lesson to me about not buying the stereo equipment. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to my mentor from college at the time, who, who said to me, you know, don't go out and, and buy the stereo equipment because you never know when the show is going to close. And so I've always lived in the, with as little debt as I can. 
yeah. to give me freedom, uh, to try to be in the what I think of as the screw you place, which means mm-hmm. that I could always at any time be able to be out of work because I don't I'm not in debt. Right. And so I live really lean that way. Uh, and I try not to live beyond my means. And it, and it's not a popular notion, you know. And, and I often feel like the grasshopper while all of the excuse me, I often feel like the ant while all the grasshoppers are out having a good time. Right. I mean, by looking at my blog, it, it appears like I'm always out having a marvelous time, and I do. But I'm not somebody who invests a lot of money in things. You know, I'm, I'm I I love buying my clothes secondhand. I you know, read books in the library a lot. I am somebody who, you know, tries to, to keep it uh, as as stimulus as I can in order to be able to keep my freedom. Right. Well, be quiet about reading books from the library because we want That's people right. to buy your book. <laughs> I know. As the words are coming out of my life, I'm thinking, no, 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 don't do that. Buy my book. That would be different. I will tell you, actually, I only, I only buy books that I read more than once. Yeah. Um, and so... Because otherwise, if I buy them and I don't want to read them again, then I give them away you know, or sell them again. Yeah. So, um, hopefully, mine is a book that you want to read more than once. Most of my right. readers do end up reading it multiple times or, or giving it to their friends, so it's something worth buying in that regard, hopefully. <laughs> there you go. Good save, good save. Well, <laughs> one of the questions I ask my authors is, what are you reading right now? So since you mentioned that you only buy books that, you, that you've read more than once, why don't you tell me what some of your favorite books are? Besides your own. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm a huge fan of, of comic fiction, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I, I love authors who write funny. So uh, one book that I recently recommended on NPR, because I'm a, a commentator for All Things Considered. Right. I, I did a, a commentary recently where I was recommending uh, Heartburn by Nora Ephron, which is a book that not a lot of people know. No. And it's... It's one of the great comic gems of the 20th century, I think. This is a, a completely underrated novel. She's a hilarious writer and so well-observed. She, she writes human behavior in a way that is, is so spot-on and incisive. Uh, so I, I can't recommend uh, her enough, frankly. I'm also a big fan of Sarah Vowell. Mm-hmm. I think she's just a brilliant writer. Um, mm-hmm. A Fascination Vacation. Is like, again, another book. Sorry to be quoting myself, but the first thing that comes to mind, of course, are the things that I recommended on NPR recently. And this was another book that I recommended on NPR, which is A Fascination Vacation by Sarah Vowell, mm-hmm. where she goes and visits all of the spots associated with the presidential assassination attempts of the 19th century, which is exactly as strange as it sounds. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's like a history lesson and a travelogue, but on the other hand, she keeps examining what the hell is wrong with me for being obsessed with assassination. Right. And so it's a very personal book in that regard, too. And I, I, I love that these books, in both cases, I always look for books that make you laugh, that can make you cry, and make you think. Mm-hmm. And hopefully all three is ideal. Right. Um, and those are certainly the two off the top of my head that I can think of that are things that are, you know, kind of the same vein of, mm-hmm. what, I, of what I'm into. Uh, right now, you know, I'm at, at the very moment I'm reading a book by Christopher Rice. Uh, who was a writer I've never read before, but uh, he's, you know, Anne Rice's son. And oh, okay. Um, is, uh, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, I, I met him at a, at a writer's conference, and I really liked him. And I, he writes thrillers, and I'm a huge fan of page-turners. I mean, because I'm a guy who writes farces, and farces are thrillers with laughs. They're the same thing. There you go. So I'm a huge fan of really good airport reads and mm-hmm. really good page-turners. And I, I can't 
I can't put this one down. It's called, uh, let's say, Light Before Day. I think I got that right. Christopher Rice. Hang on, I'm looking it up right now. At this very moment, I'm standing at my nightstand saying, yes, Light Before Day by Christopher Rice. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he, he's got me hooked. You had mentioned in an email that you had a book um, by Susan Jane Gilman, um, Undress Me in the Temple of Heaven, that's coming out in March. Right. And um, you're going to... You said you might go ahead and uh, submit a review for her. I'd be happy to, yes. Yeah, that'd be great. So can you give us a little taste for what that book's about? Susie Gilman's Undress Me in the Temple of Heaven is a memoir about a time when she and a college friend, right after graduation from Brown in 1986, decide to go around the world. And the world kicks them in the asses. It's about that moment where you emerge thinking you're going to take on the world and the world has other plans for you. And they, what happens is they go to China and her friend has a, a nervous breakdown, essentially, a psychotic break. But it's a long, suspenseful <laughs> psychotic It's very clear from the start to the reader that something is not right with this friend, but it takes the narrator a really long time to figure it out. So it's just this very suspenseful, almost Hitchcockian kind of read. Huh. And again, I love funny writers. Susie makes me laugh out loud. I loved Hypocrite in a Pussy White Dress, which is her mm-hmm. first memoir, mm-hmm. which is a very female David Sedarisy kind of kind of humor. And but she's also very wise and has really interesting uh, insights. I think light fiction and light and comic writers can sometimes get uh, dismissed as being too frothy, when in fact they're quite wise. Hmm. I. Without getting too grandiose about it, this might be a good place to close. <laughs> I, I think of my role in the culture, if I have one, mm-hmm. is that of the court jester. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my job to tell the truth, but as Emily Dickinson says, to tell it slant, mm-hmm. and to to try to shine a light in dark spaces in a way that is is funny, and to. And, and I think the the comics have a, have a, a rare opportunity to be able to do that because people will listen to you if you're making them laugh, as opposed right. to being really boring and pedantic the way I'm talking right now, for instance. <laughs> but I wish there were a funny way to say this. But it is, I, I think that's sort of the, the trajectory of that. And so what happens is people don't think you're saying anything profound because you're making them laugh. But right. I think if you look closely at some of the great comic writers, you'll notice that they actually are saying things that are quite found. They're just not so friggin' serious about it. They don't. They have the good sense to amuse you while they're doing it. Right. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you before we go, I know we're running out of time, is um, I had seen that the your first book was optioned. Is there any word on that yet? We are currently actually switching gears on that and looking to develop it for television. Oh, good. Well, that's what I thought would be best for it. Not that you met, not that you've asked, but I just think I'm like, there's so much there in your writing. I could just totally see, you know, you mean as a series or like, um, I mean, I see it as a series, but are you thinking more of a, uh, no, are they thinking as a series actually? They're yeah. thinking seriously as a series because we're at a place right now where the difficulty they've had after five years of developing it as a film is, is cramming all the activity into 90 minutes. Right. And right. what they keep losing is, I mean, it's not that it's unadaptable. Of course they could adapt it. But what happens is that then they they have to cut all the stuff out, and then everybody has the same reaction, which is, well, yeah, but all the fun stuff has gone away just so we can tell the bare-bones story. 
So the feeling is to go the opposite direction and actually expand and to look at doing it as a series, which would enable me not only to tell everything that I've told thus far, but even more and revisit these these characters and these situations and fill in even more about their lives. So that's what we're looking at right now. We're just starting to explore that option. I can almost see it as like a combination between Friends and Seinfeld with the, you know, the theater people. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. Hopefully it'll work out that way. Next big sitcom. Let's, 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 let's hope. I, I could definitely see it. So we're, we're, we're just inching into that area right now. That's a completely new development here. But I'm, I'm really excited about it. It, it yeah. feels much more novelistic to me mm-hmm. you know, because, because television being you know, longer form, you have the opportunity to really in, in, investigate far more deeply into right. the characters, which again sounds terribly serious. And <laughs> yeah, but thing. it'll be hilarious. It'll be a hit. It will be hilarious. That's right. That's right. That's great. Okay. Well, Marcus Cito, the book again is Attack of the Theater People. Thank you so much for being on the show. I had a great a great time talking with you today. Oh, I had a great time too. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Listeners, I'll put links to Mark's website and videos on wordstomouth.com. Again, please feel free to call 206-309-7318 and share your thoughts on the book or this interview. Thank you to all you wonderful listeners and viewers who have left comments on the the website so far and the nice reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It's really starting to feel like a community here. Thank you to Natalie Brown for her song, You Gotta Believe, from the Podsafe Music Network. And thanks for listening. Take good care. Until next time. 